Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this podcast, you hear a conversation with two representatives of UN Women's Asia and the Pacific Regional Office. The conversation was presented by UN Women National Committee Australia and the United Nations Association of Australia and was recorded on October 11th in Canberra at the ACT Legislative Assembly. The conversation was facilitated by Janelle Weissman, Executive Director of UN Women National Committee Australia. Are we, are we live? Are we good? Um, that one's live. Okay. We'll stick with the one that's working, shall we? Good evening. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, and pay my respects to the elders past, present, and future. I'm Jenna Weissman, and it is an absolute pleasure to be here with colleagues from UN Women Asia and Pacific Regional Office. Our role at UN Women National Committee Australia is to fundraise and to advocate for the issues that UN Women holds dear. You're going to hear a lot more in depth about those issues, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But it is an absolute pleasure to introduce, firstly, Anna Karen Yatfosh. Anna Karen is Deputy Regional Director at UN Women's <coughs> Regional Office in Asia for Asia and the Pacific, where she provides programmatic and operational oversight, technical advisory services, and capacity building to facilitate the development implementation and monitoring of policies and programs. Before taking on this role, Anna Karen was actually in the role that Melissa is in. So she was the Ending Violence Against Women program coordinator. So we have two fantastic experts on the work that UN Women is doing, as well as global experts in all of the work that UN Women is doing across the region. So um, let's see, a national of Sweden, Anna Karen has more than 15 years' experience working on policy and programming related to women's and children's rights, combined with a background in communications and advocacy. Prior to joining UN Women, Anna Karen was with UNICEF. So please join me in welcoming Anna Karen. Melissa Alvarado, welcome. Melissa is the Ending Violence Against Women Program Coordinator, again in the Regional Office for Asia and the Pacific, based in Bangkok. Melissa has been working specifically on ending violence against women and children for over 18 years through program management and design, policy and le legislative development and implementation, interagency response system development, technical assistance, capacity building, advocacy, and research. Prior to joining the regional office, Melissa managed UN Women's Ending Violence Against Women portfolio <coughs> in the Pacific, and I had the pleasure of working closely with Melissa during her time there as we at UN Women National Committee Australia frequently raise funds to support the important work in the 14 Pacific Island countries and territories from Fiji to Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, and Kiribati. Um, let's see, prior to working in the Pacific, she provided dedicated technical support or in between to UN Women in Afghanistan. So um, Melissa has worked for UN Women headquarters in New York, policy division on any violence against women, UNFPA in Sudan, managing gender-based violence programs in complex settings, and with international NGOs really around the world. So please join me in welcoming Melissa. Thank you both for spending time with us. So um, to kick off, what are the most pressing issues facing women in the Asia and Pacific region? <coughs> Thanks, Janelle, and, and thanks for having us here. It's, it's such a pleasure to be uh, amongst friends and, and allies uh, working on and interested in these issues. Um, so maybe I should start by saying that, you know, within the UN Women Regional Office based in Bangkok, we are covering 32 countries spanning from Afghanistan to Fiji. 
Um, so we probably try to give some examples from across the region, and then maybe if there are particular uh, interests in, in, in particular parts of the region, we'd be happy to do so, because of course it is a region that covers more than half the world's population, and it's very complex uh, and, and very diverse. But there are quite a lot of commonalities that, that, that you can see, and, and when you look at the main challenges related to gender inequalities across the region, um, there are three broad areas that I would like to highlight initially, and they're the ones related to women's lack of what we call voice, choice, and safety. So safety, perhaps first, violence against women. There's no secret to anyone. Absolutely pervasive, um, very high levels, extraordinarily high levels of violence across the region, um, with up to two, two thirds of women in some countries, particularly in the Pacific, uh, and most countries fall between the, between one third and half of all women who experience uh, violence at some point in their life. And now, of course, there are many differences in terms of the types of violence. We have sorcery-related violence, where women are literally murdered for, for, for being witches in, in PNG, for example, honor-related crimes in, in Afghanistan and other parts of South Asia, sex selection and other <coughs> practices. So there, there's a lot of diversity, um, but, but, but largely speaking, uh, the, the levels are very high. Um, and then even though there has been quite a lot of progress on the policy side and on the legal side, we're not seeing those policies effectively implemented. Um, for the most part, there's widespread impunity. Very few perpetrators are ever held uh, accountable. Um, and not only within the formal justice system, which is, of course, the case in much of the world, but in fact, we're not even seeing any kind of moral sanctioning uh, with very high levels of acceptance of, of this violence as, as quite a normal uh, a way to resolve uh, conflict and, and, and disagreement. Um, um, I think Melissa will talk more to this, but also where women do experience violence, their services are often not available at all, or if they are available, they might just be in some very small urban centers uh, where women do not have access. Certainly if you live in remote areas, or if you are particularly marginalized, so women who suffer from different forms of discrimination, women living with disabilities, or coming from ethnic minorities, or sex workers, or HIV-positive women, would, would definitely not have uh, access to, uh, to, to, to services at all. So that's around the issues of violence. Secondly, uh, with regards to economic assets and having capabilities to, to take control over your life and to build economic independence. Um, our region is an interesting one because Compared to global averages, economic growth is quite high. Relatively speaking, of course, there are differences, but something like 6%, 6.5% per annum. But that is coupled with inequalities between countries and inequalities within countries that are growing very fast. So even despite that economic growth, women, and many women, certainly the most marginalized, are not able to take advantage of the opportunities to benefit from this um, economic growth. So if you look at education levels, uh, it's surprisingly positive if you look at the figures, even at the higher levels. In fact, in some countries, uh, we have girls having higher levels of completing schools and boys. Um, but unfortunately, so far, education is not translating into equal access to labor markets. And so even though girls go to school, the underlying gender norms that are holding girls back are not being addressed. And so they're still expected to take care of the families. If you look at the ASEAN region, for example, married women do an average of three and a half hours more every day of unpaid work than married men. Three and a half hours on average. In some countries, it's something like six or seven hours more. So 
of course, that, that does have huge implications for their ability to, 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 earn, uh, to earn an income outside, outside of the home. Um, and, and furthermore, where women do work, they're much more likely to be unpaid family workers, to work in agriculture, to if, to, if there are migrant workers and go and work in another, either in another country or perhaps in an urban area within their own countries. Um, they are much more likely to be in unregulated sectors, particularly in domestic care work. Uh, or working in the service industry or, or, or other areas where there are tremendous contributions that they are making to their societies because we know that they are making those contributions are not recognized and they are not seen and as such they are, they are um, uh, under, uh, undervalued. And where women do have um, the skills that they need, they are still suffering from lack of land rights, uh, lack of property rights, difficulties in accessing financial services, so there's a whole range of barriers that, that, that are preventing them from um, um, from, uh, uh, from taking from taking advantage. And the last point I want to highlight, because uh, there, there are so many issues, but I'm just trying to highlight a few, um, are linked to women's leadership and voice and participation. Because we do have very low levels uh, of women at the national level, certainly in Parliament. Um, it's somewhere around 19% in Asia and 16% in the Pacific of parliamentarians who are women. And we do know it's not enough to have women in parliament, but we know that it's, a, you know, it's necessary. So it's necessary, but not enough. But where women are not even there uh, to influence policymaking, uh, that, that does mean that women's concerns and, and, and women's voices are not, are not being reflected. And of course, we are also the most disaster-prone region in the world. We have a lot of disasters, recurring disasters, a lot of humanitarian uh, uh, situations, of course, and, and including conflicts. Um, mainly, largely within within countries, and there, similarly, and we were just talking before we started. We do know that having women at the negotiation table, having women engaged as peacemakers, as mediators, makes for more lasting peace. It makes for humanitarian assistance that is much more effective, much more targeted, um, and uh, and yet we are still largely seeing women excluded from a lot of these uh, uh, processes including linked to, to, to climate change, disaster response, uh, and things like that. So I think I'll probably stop there because I've spoken already for quite some time. There are other issues, but I think if we have to highlight some of those main barriers, I think those would be some of the main ones. Great. Thanks so much, Anna-Karen. Um, what are the root causes? So why, why are these pressing issues in the region? And I think you both may want to yeah. add to that. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, of course, you know, we, we, it's, it's, it's a bit of a circular argument to say that the root, you know, these are manifestations of gender inequality and the cause is gender inequality. Uh, but really, this is, this is what we're talking about. Because underlying all of this are discriminatory norms and practices and beliefs and systems around femininity and masculinity and what a woman's role should be in society and in the home and in the family and in the community and what men's roles should be. And these biases then come up, they, they appear in every aspect of society, from how parents teach their boys and girls to behave, uh, how teachers treat boys and girls at school, uh, experiences that adolescent girls face in, in, in having their behavior and their, even their very mobility being controlled. We know that there's so much sexual harassment and stalking, whether online or public transport, 
even as women are seeking to access the public space. Um, and where you have these biases that are so embedded uh, and these discriminatory, uh, harmful ideas of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, that is then being policed uh, by agents of the state, but also by friends and neighbors and by people themselves. Uh, this makes legal progress very difficult to translate into real progress on the ground. Because you might have a law, uh, in fact, and I really should have said that at the beginning, but almost all countries in Asia and the Pacific have ratified a women's convention, the CEDAW. Yeah? Most of them have non-discrimination in their national constitutions. Uh, in fact, the majority now have laws on domestic violence. Some 80% of countries in the region have such laws. But yet, when a woman experiences violence and she goes to the police, they'll say, ah, it's your responsibility to keep a happy family. It's not so serious. You go home, sort it out. Or why are you asking for so many things? Mediate. We can get some compensation. Yeah? So with, these are the messages that, 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 that women get, which influence, which prevent them from exercising their rights. In fact, women themselves, we know, tend to believe, sometimes even more than men, that a man is justified in beating his wife, for example, that a woman's role should be at home. Um, and we've been working a lot to try to strengthen women's voices and women's agency and, and feminist movement building <coughs> activism. But I think we're slowly growing to understand that a lot more work with men and boys, a lot more work on addressing masculinities needs to be done. Um, we did a survey uh, interviewing some 10,000 men across the region about their use and experience of violence. And shockingly, out of the men, over between these sample of 10,000, it's not representative of the whole region, of course, but it's still uh, six countries, 10,000 men, some, uh, about 25% admitted to having perpetrated rape at some point in their life, yeah. mainly within a, a, a relationship. But even one in 10 had perpetrated non-partner rape or admitted to having done so. It's very high figures. Um, and the majority of them had done so when they themselves were just teenagers. And very few had faced any kind of sanction. Um, and so in this environment, there is a sense of entitlement. And this is just the example of violence. Uh, that men have an entitlement over women and their bodies, that consent is not an issue. Um, and it does ultimately stem from the same, and we can make this an example about violence, we can make the same example about why women are not in parliament or why women are not in the boardroom, or why women do not get to have all the land title. But ultimately it's about gender stereotypes and harmful norms and power imbalances between women and men um, that, um, are manifesting themselves uh, really at, at, at all levels of society. And I don't know, maybe Melissa would like to highlight more in relation to violence, but. Well, I think that, you know, this afternoon we had uh, the privilege to be sitting with experts from across Australia, Australian government, um, who came to present some of the emerging trends and knowledge from the Australian experience, which is, a very important uh, example that the rest of the world pays attention to. You know, Australia's got some very good policies and programs and practices um, related to addressing family violence in a very holistic way. Um, and so the discussion this afternoon, we talked with our watch, 
um, which is a very important uh, NGO su uh, supporting behavioral change and prevention of violence across Australia. And you know, they've done a global scan of the evidence uh, to look at what are, what are the consistent trends about violence? What are the con consistent patterns and risk factors and drivers of violence? And, and the, the message is, is the same across countries. It's about gender inequality. You know, it's such, it's such a basic thing. It seems so basic, right? And it almost, you know, seems like we're saying the same thing over and over again. But so the message is there. We know, and the evidence is there, that, you know, we have to address this issue of gender inequality, of how we view women and girls, boys and men, in relationship to each other, and then in, in how they experience education, how they experience work, how they experience healthcare, you know, in any dimension of society, we have to be asking the question, you know, how does this impact women and men differently? And fortunately, because we work for the UN, we are able to interact with a lot of different governments and to ask this question. And what's, what's really interesting related to trying to change the story related to this gendered differential in power, in knowledge, and access to resources, is that governments are innovating. They are trying to do things differently to change the story, right? And to, and to, and to shift uh, women's representation and leadership, to shift uh, the way that governments address Things like infrastructure, building roads, building water systems, things that have a direct impact on family well-being, on not just individual but community well-being. Um, you know, recently, I was in uh, Indonesia at a big conference about urban development, and one and I moderated a panel about gender equality and urban development. And one of the things that I learned through moderating that panel and that discussion was that in Indonesia, they have a ministry for gender equality. And that ministry has been working, has been talking to all the other ministries in, in the Indonesian government and saying, look, what can, you know, are you asking this question about how are your services supporting women and men equally or not? Uh, and they found that when they started to ask this question, of course, there was the initial resistance of, we provide services to everybody, it's the same, you know, we're doing a good job, but no. They're actually, they discovered there's a lot of ways that we can offer health services, for example, to make sure that the hours are, you know, available for women who have children or who are working or who are doing, trying to do everything. Um, that there are ways to develop road, 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 road building projects or, or water projects or, you know, solar energy projects that in fact are informed by women, their use of energy, their use of water, and they're doing really good work. And not only that, but they're doing things to change women's representation in these ministries. So for example, Ministry of Planning and Development decided that they were going to try to recruit more women. How did they do that? They made policies within their ministry so that women who, there's good maternity leave for women who are working in the ministry, um, women who come back to work after, uh, after pregnancy, after childbirth, <coughs> I have breastfeeding facilities on every floor of the Ministry of Infrastructure. They have breastfeeding rooms. This is a real innovation, you know. There are UN offices that don't even have this, this kind of, you know, friendliness 
to parents, to women as parents, women as mothers, um, that, you know, that, that really created change and would show that a, a business or an organization is supporting women to be active, to continue their career, right? These are important developments which, you know, are really leading edge, right? This is where, this is where we, we need to be going. You know, for women to be able to stay and work, this is actually a really important factor in addressing violence against women, right? One of the leading factors for women who are in domestic violence situations is that they are stuck economically, right? If they don't have the capacity, and in a lot of developing countries where we work, women just haven't been given the opportunity to have a full education or to have full skills to be able to be employed, or maybe they don't have the freedom to leave their home uh, because that, the, the social structures don't support that. So for women to be able to work and for, and for companies um, to be able and businesses to be able to support women to, to work, to fulfill their role as mothers, and to come back to work, this enables women to have power. Money is power. Decision-making power um, is guided in, often by resources, right? So the more that businesses can understand this and support this, the more that, and the more supportive environment we can create for women is, is in the end, friendlier to families and creates more safety. Um, now, I think it's important, some of the things that AK has said about gender equality, you know, so we're always trying to flip the script. So if it's gender inequality that drives things like violence against women, how do we support, you know, lifting these, lifting these changes? How do we support more women in leadership, more women in... <coughs> in uh, employment, more women in, um, you know, uh, just, it, you know, to be part of the economic workforce, for example. Um, and we know that we've done research which shows, we've looked at countries globally and we've said, okay, you know, they do these sort of gender equality or inequality uh, comparisons and ratings of countries, right? And we've looked at the countries that have the highest rates of gender equality and we've cross-compared what are their rates of violence against women. Well, it's not surprising to know that countries with the highest rates of gender equality, so they've got lots of women represented in leadership, there's strong workforce, strong education, strong healthcare, et cetera, those are the countries with the lowest rates of violence against women. These things are connected, right? And so that we know that all the efforts that governments and private sector is making, um, civil society, of course, driving this conversation, all of these efforts are making a difference. We can actually track you know, those changes statistically. And so we know that we're on the right path, um, but like AK, you know, the, the picture that she painted is, you know, it's, it's real. You know, the, the challenges that we're facing are stark. Um, there are, so we, you know, we hope today to, to paint a little bit of that picture that we are seeing across the Asia Pacific region. There's hope. There's challenge, uh, but and there's opportunities, and so we'll, we'll be talking a bit more about that in this conversation. Fantastic, yeah. thanks, Melissa. Traveling yeah. microphones. Um, so, you've given an example in Indonesia that you recently um, observed, which is really exciting, and I'm sure there would be countless examples of promising programs and policy work that you've been specifically involved in advancing through your work at UN Women. So. Um, Anna Karen, would you like to kick it off? Sure. No, I, mean, I think we have been uh, fairly strong, I think, uh, in, in supporting countries uh, to establish the right legal frameworks. 
And of course, having a law is not enough, but it's essential because the state, and you know, we often talk about the law not being neutral, not being static, it evolves, it's shaped by norms, but it's also the other way around. Law shapes norms, right? Because where the state steps in and says, for example, violence against women is unacceptable, it sends a very powerful message. Of course, only to the extent that that law is then properly enforced. Because it's not just enough to have law, you need to have the rule of law. And so there have been more and more countries that have been developing and, and adopting these laws. And of course, you and women together with lots of other uh, agencies and women's rights organizations have been working and advocating for this for many years. But there's been, I think, an acceleration in that. Certainly at the, the rhetoric and the political discourse, you know, it's, it's no longer taboo. It's, it's, it's no longer a, a niche issue. And it, it is there at the highest level. You know, we see it with sustainable development goals, right? These, these issues are at the forefront. Um, and so I think those are very good examples. And even last year, we had several countries in the Pacific where recently almost none of the countries had laws. Those laws are now there. In China, last year, the first time ever, there was national legislation to criminalize violence against women. Um, but I think where some of the innovation is happening is then what are the creative ways that we can make sure that those laws are implemented? Yeah. So we're working, for example, with the police. Uh, we know the challenges. Women are underrepresented in the police. Most police officers are men. Um, and a lot of those men have not had any gender sensitivity training. They may not know how to speak to uh, a woman who comes in this experienced violence. And so what we've been doing in, in, in several countries, working with the police force to train, not even just police, but police cadets. You know, the ones who are in the police training academies to train them. And when you see these young police officers who say, oh, and I recall meeting this, this one uh, young police officer from Thailand recently, that don't have that many, still it's their time to, to keep growing. And he said, she said, you know, I used to think that domestic violence was uh, a domestic matter and, and I would uh, try to encourage the woman to, to sort it out because you know, it's, it's our tradition and, and it's, it's what I've been taught. But now I can see, as a police officer, I have a role to play in, 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 in implementing this law and in, in providing the support to this woman. And so, to me, that's, that's really powerful what you have, um, you know, what we call duty bearers. You know, it's a bit of a jargon, but, you know, the agents of the state have a duty, right, to protect its citizens. And the state has a duty um, to uh, ensure that human rights are realized. And of course, we know, and if you have any uh, legal petitioners in the room, you know, this, what they call the due diligence principle. It's not just if it's perpetrated by the state, it includes the, 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 private, the private sphere as well. Um, and so I think that's one interesting side of the justice. But we're also seeing um, the enabling environment where women are working and living. So in the Pacific, fantastic work that also, of course, uh, Australia, um, uh, you and women here in Australia, and all of you have supported in the Pacific around safe cities, safe markets. 80, 90% of market vendors are women. And the work that you and women has been able to support, uh, and some of it is quite basic, but it wasn't there. Helping women to open bank accounts so they would not be at risk of being robbed. They'd never had bank accounts before. Setting up police, local police desks in the markets report crimes, training the security guards that they actually had a role 
to play in preventing violence and not perpetrate, right? Um, having transport, transportation, so that women can get to work, because we know that even the risk of violence is preventing women from going to work, and it's a reason why women stay home. So I think there's a lot of a lot of innovation both on the on the justice side uh, and on the you know enabling environment side, um, and and also to try to challenge our ideas of what is acceptable, uh, what is okay. There's been this initiative quite recently in Pakistan, women on wheels. You know, it's not socially acceptable for women to be on motorcycles, but women live in rural areas. They have to get to the market, they have to go to work, they have to take the kids to school, there's no public transport, they were losing hours. So women have been trained um, to, to ride motorcycles, and by doing so are accessing the space and challenging stereotypes about what a woman in the public space looks like. So you know, there's a lot of these really interesting, and I think what we're trying to do is to support a lot of these different innovations, document what works. We know that something in one country may not be exactly the same in another country. There are so many differences. We have to contextualize, we have to research, we have to evaluate. But there's some really interesting initiatives um, happening. I mean, this is just a, a, a small little snapshot, but trying to find different ways to approach um, old problems, new ways to solve old problems. In Myanmar, for example, the elections, very few women stood for public office, very male-dominated. So we worked with a women's rights organization in mm -hmm. Myanmar to go into this community, it's the Mon community, it's an ethnic minority community, um, to talk to the Buddhist monks in that community. Would they put information about importance of voting for female candidates you know, in the Buddhist temples? Would they talk about it? Yeah? And so these are all, I think, examples about finding new people to be the carriers of that message, uh, finding new ways to uh, to approach problems and, and because of course we know that it cannot just be one sector's responsibility or one group. Um, and so I do think there's a lot of, I'll hand to Melissa because I think there's a lot on the evil side, on the ending violence against women side as well. Mm. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of really interesting work uh, being done across the region. That's great. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, we've the reason why we're here this week is because uh, Australian government, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, has organized a week of roundtables and forums and discussions specifically on ending violence against women. So we were invited to come and present, and that's what we're doing all week, and we wanted to take our, the opportunity of the time here to come and meet with you know, friends like you. Uh, so this is why we're probably talking a lot about violence against women today. We work in many areas of leadership and women's you know, political participation empowerment, as Anna Karen said. Uh, but we are very, very much focused and, and our thoughts are really around violence against women this week. Um, so I will give you a couple more examples of some leading edge work that's happening related to ending violence against women and girls. Uh, so one of the interesting problems that we face very regularly in the countries where we're working is that there's not a, a consistent or standard understanding between the, the people that need to be responding to survivors of violence about what is the right way, what is the right approach. And often there's very, there could be widely differing views on that, on that issue. So some health workers, for example, might say, 
that's not really my problem. Violence against women is not, is not a health issue as a doctor or as a health practitioner. I don't really need to focus on that. You know, I'm going to leave that to the police, or I'm going to leave that to the women's rights groups, and it's not really my thing. And, and you know, you might be surprised to know that that's kind of a common, common thing that we hear. It's not, it's not that common. Same thing, you know, Anna Karen gave the example of police. Often, often, I mean, by and large, the response that many women get if they try to take their case to a police officer is, A, what did you do wrong? Uh, B, please go home and talk to your husband and make sure you don't make that mistake again. The, the, the violence is very often not taken seriously. Cases are not recorded, and women are not assisted to seek justice or to get safety when they do take the very difficult step of admitting that something horrible is happening in their family and trying to get help. And so, you know, just consistently across countries, that is primarily what we see happening in a lot of developed countries. So UN Women has, for the past several years, been working with several other UN agencies to develop a set of standards, a set of guidelines that would, be, would apply to every country to say, okay, if violence happens, whether it's sexual violence, if it's domestic violence, whatever's the issue, what is, what is a basic set of responses that she would need? Maybe she needs, if she's in a domestic violence situation, if she's in danger, she would need possibly access to a shelter. If she might need to get to call up somebody and get some counseling or get some help, she might need a hotline. Um, from the health clinic, she's going to need certain kinds of services. She's going to need to know that quite possibly she could take medication to prevent pregnancy, to prevent HIV, to document her case, you know, to document maybe the wounds or, or at least what happened. So there's a, a basic set. From the police, she should have a, a basic kind of response, which respects her story, which protects her confidentiality, you know. So there's, there's some basics, same from the justice system. So we have, for the past several years, gathered experts from around the world on the topics of policing and justice, social welfare and counseling responses, uh, health, um, and coordination as well. And so we've developed a set of guidelines, we're calling them the essential services guidelines, and so now we have the first time set out this sort of basic set of, basic package of services. And we hope, and now that we're rolling that out right now with countries, the idea is that we'll sort of help countries fast forward to better agreement among these different agencies that need to be responsive about what they need to be doing at a minimum. And it's sort of a checklist. So they can say, all right, okay, we've got, we're doing this, 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 but oh, we really need to do better about confidentiality at health clinics. And we need to, do, and we actually don't have shelters. So let's see if we can, if that's something that would work or would be desired in our context, how would that happen? Uh, so we are working with countries to now roll this out um, with actually a lot of funding support from Australia. And we'll be rolling that out in three countries in the Asia Pacific region. That'll be piloted in Cambodia, and in the Pacific, in Kiribati, and in Solomon Islands. And part of the reason why we chose those two Pacific countries is because they're small, they've got legislation, they've done national prevalence research to know what, is, what are the rates of violence against women, and they are extraordinarily high in those two countries. It's two out of every three women experience physical and sexual violence in their lifetime. That's two out of every three. That's extreme. 
Uh, and, you know, the government is taking some action to try to improve things. And so, and UN agencies are working together. So we know that we have an opportunity to perhaps set some models and establish some good practices um, that would come with support. So we provide a lot of technical support in that process. So that is something that's very new. This is the first time this has been done. Countries have tried to say what this is what we think should happen uh, related to services on violence against women within our country, but we have not yet ever said this is really a global standard. So it's pretty exciting. Now related to prevention of violence, um, we know that, and there's a, there's a huge amount of interest in preventing violence against women and girls, because you know we've been addressing uh, the response to violence over time, and a lot of more developed countries have quite a lot of experience on that now, but we don't know quite as much yet about what works to prevent violence. How do we change not just thinking about violence and, and attitudes that might accept violence as normal, because there is an intergenerational uh, transmission of violence, right? It is something that you see it, you experience it, you live it, you feel like it's acceptable. It's something that you tend to pass on in your families, right? In the way that you raise your children, in the way that you treat your spouse, in the way that women accept violence also. These are, you know, intergenerational. So globally, there's been a lot of research, uh, evaluations to look at what are some of the, what might be some of the techniques that would work to actually shift that kind of thinking on an individual level, on a community level, and on a society level. So we're really looking at broad scale change. And fortunately, we've been able to identify some ways that, that appear to be working. Some countries have been able to document community-wide shifts in acceptance of violence. So reducing acceptance of violence, but not just the acceptance, they've been actually able to also show community-wide reductions in violence against women. So this is true in, for example, Uganda. Uganda's been a pioneer in preventing violence against women. They've taken the conversation to the whole community. Because what we realize is you can't really just engage in a program that will engage uh, a group of youth or a group of couples or you know, even some schools. You need to take it really to the whole community. This has one, been one of our important lessons that we've learned globally, that if you're really going to address violence, it's something that you've got to see it. You've got to see messages about this on TV. You've got to hear it about it on the radio. You have to hear about it in schools, in universities, at workplaces. You have to see it on the city bus going by. You know, you have to really kind of flood, you know, the, uh, the community with a conversation about this. And also an interesting part of the work that has worked, uh, the programs that have worked, is that they're really talking about power. Sometimes there's a, a bit of a backlash or some resistance when we talk about gender, because gender is equated with women, and some people really are not keen to, to work on women's rights, and there's a backlash against sometimes the, the feminist language or you know, discussions about gender. And a lot of the countries don't even have a word for gender. True. Yes. So yes. That's very problematic. Exactly. Well. Yeah. You have to sort of yeah help people introduce them to the language and all that takes time. So when but when you do talk about power and you use power as the point of discussion, that's something that everyone can relate to. Men equally can engage in conversations about disempowerment. There are always contexts where we are all disempowered. That we are always less powerful than someone else, and we all care about power. 
We all care about how we can access power differently and how we use our power. So how do we use our power in relationships? How do we use our power in relation to our children, our coworkers, et cetera? So this is a conversation that is, that is helping um, to talk about power. How are we relating power differently between men and women, for example? So we're taking this approach and approaches that we know work to some of the contexts where we're working. So for example, in Vietnam, we've adapted this approach to a community level approach on preventing violence. So we're engaging parent groups, men's groups, uh, school-based groups, women's groups, of course, um, in this conversation. And, and we're seeing, we're starting to see shifts. You know, we're engaging in sort of a phased approach. It takes time. Prevention takes a long time. We know that. We have to invest in sort of a long-term approach. So this is what we're doing. Uh, and, you know, AK, AK mentioned the research in Asia and the Pacific related to men's use of violence, their own experiences of violence and their use of violence. She mentioned also that there was a surprising finding that when, when we asked men, okay, when was, for those who did admit to committing sexual violence or rape, uh, when was the first time that you did that was one of the questions. Half of the men admitted to doing so for the first time when they were a teenager. They were 19 years or, old or younger. 12% of those men said that they actually committed rape for the first time when they were under the age of 15. 15 years. I want you to think about that. Where do these boys get this idea that that would be okay? Right? Like, is, is, how are they getting these messages? You know, and this is a range of countries. It's not just one country. This is a range of countries, a range of communities, a range of places where religions, you know, dominant religions, or, you know, all kinds of cutting across all kinds of social economic classes. So we have to really, we've been sitting with that question. How do we engage people younger and younger? We know that we need to engage young people. This research has led us to think a bit differently about how we're engaging young people. We need to actually start before they're 12. We need to start when they're five and they're six and they're seven, right? And, and we need to start looking at what are, what are our textbooks telling kids? We've been looking at textbooks across Asia Pacific countries and we're seeing that in a number of countries, there are lessons about how to, you know, how to be a good man or woman, boy or girl. And they really say like, you know, a woman's place is in the home she needs to be performing these kinds of duties, these kinds of responsibilities, and those things matter. Because if we're going to change the way women and girls are perceived and their capabilities, their roles, their possibilities, the power that they have in families, we need to really start that conversation much younger. It's also about sex. We need to have conversations about sex with young people and how we engage with sex. This is very much related to I think that there's a lot of now media in Australia about pornography, about how pornography is changing sexual relationships between men and women, young people, teenagers. This is a very important conversation. You know, there's now new research about the first sexual experiences of girls and boys. It's very different now. There's a lot of aggression in early sexual experiences. There's a lot of forced sexual initiation. Sex is changing. And so it's important to have relationships, uh, conversations with young people about what do we, what do we expect? What, what is a healthy sexual relationship? What should I 
as a say 13 or 14 year old girl, if, I'm, if that's what I am, what should I expect from my boyfriend? Uh, as a you know in, in that in that regard, or if I'm a newly married or about to be married person, what what is my expectation? What is a healthy sexual expectation? You know sexual expectation. So we know that these are conversations that are important to have to change you know the the experiences of, of sexual violence, for example. So uh, maybe I'll just mention one more thing. Uh, Anna Karen mentioned our experience in supporting. Uh, cities to work with local governments to be safer. We've had really good success in engaging local governments, women's groups, women's rights organizations, to look at sexual harassment, the experiences of sexual harassment, which is enormous in cities all over the world. And in some cities, we've been able to document. So for example, in New Delhi, in India, which is the site of some very horrific sexual violence cases that have been very public globally, Uh, We did some surveys to find out how many women experience sexual harassment. 92% of women experience sexual harassment. And that's not just, sometimes that's touching, sometimes that's groping, sometimes it's uh, showing, you know, uh, material or saying words or gestures that are sexual harassing that make you feel fearful uh, and afraid for your own safety. And so we're doing safety audits with women. We're empowering women, we're working with women so that to make, to, 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 draw on their expertise as residents, as commuters, uh, you know, as women who are walking around after work, um, wherever they're going, to look at where are the dangerous places in your community, where, how can we work with local government to make those places safer. In Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea, this is one of our flagship programs. We've been doing a lot of work there, making transportation safer. We're doing similar work in the Philippines, and, and the work is, is a little bit exploding. <laughs> uh, we're getting more requests by cities than we can actually you know, begin to support. So it's an area that's really gaining a lot of ground. And this is also an area where there's been innovation with technology. There's now mobile apps where they're sort of crowdsourcing data about what are some dangerous places, what are safer places in your community. Women are sending text messages, they're sending photos, they're sending reports of harassment on transportation in certain locations. And so we're able to gather data about what's safe, what's not safe, and how can we use that to inform residents and and to inform local government about how they can police better, how they can create safer lighting, whatever. So so there's a lot of progress there. There's a lot of change happening. And these are areas where we know that it's important for us to be investing. And And it's also creating benefits for everyone, not just women, right? So men benefit. Children benefit, everyone benefits. I think I'll pause there. (laughs) That's great. Thanks so much, Melissa. And if you don't mind, what I might do is hold the last two questions for the last five minutes. And we have about 10 minutes at the moment to turn it over to you. So thank you all for coming and engaging in these issues. UN Women is a very new agency established in 2010 and is doing groundbreaking work, as you obviously would have observed from both Melissa and Anna Karen. So... Are there any questions around the room? So Bridie here is a fantastic volunteer of ours. She'll get the mic to you. Thank you. Margaret Finlay-Smith from National Council of Women of Australia. Where are sustainable development goals? One of the things they don't address as a major concern is domestic violence. They cover everything, believe me, but 
Domestic violence is not terribly high on the list. They have human rights. They have all sorts of issues. But if you look through them very carefully, they don't prioritise domestic violence as a major problem. Now, it's everyone's going to have to report. And while we know Australia's not going to do terribly well, there are a lot of countries which are going to start from a very low base level and it's an enormous problem and I just don't know if it's really going to achieve what they hope it's going to achieve with the multitude of problems which all seem to start with the attitude of men towards women. And I just hope that, and it's more a comment than a question, I just hope that it's going to achieve something which the Millennium Development Goals didn't achieve um, and that we in Australia do better, because we're not doing that on domestic violence, no matter how much money we pour into it, but we don't have quite the number of problems that they have in the Pacific. I know this is huge, but you've still got a whole lot of problems also where most of these countries, a lot of countries that go to the UN are actually represented by men, not by women. So you have a cultural <coughs> problem to start with. So that's really a comment rather than a question. Wait, shall we take a few? Sure. Take a few. sure. My name is Mariam Shafar. Um, I just have a question. I, am, uh, I came from Afghanistan and I am really interested to know um, why is um, violence against women in Afghanistan is really major. So, for example, uh, for people like countries like Afghanistan, the government is having a lot of issues already, and then women, um, it, gender equality is something that they probably don't even consider. They don't even think about it because they have war. Um, so, what's happening? I understand that women, um, UN women, is working with the local government to make this um, uh, uh, recognized. Um, so women who are currently going through violence, when they go to their local police, obviously they get the same response. And unfortunately, they actually, um, just recently I heard it on the Afghan um, national news that they um, went to um, report and they, unfortunately, she got raped from the police officer and then she went back home, unfortunately, knowing that nothing's going to happen, <laughs> worst thing happened. So for those, um, for this type of situation, are there anything that UN Women is doing to implement in those countries so that they don't have to go through the local government? Or if there is, how come it's not like, mm, not many people know about that? Why don't they know so they just avoid the local government? They can just go to there and knowing that they will be heard and they will be safe. Shall we take one more question? One more question and then we'll... Yes? One more, one more and then we'll answer those. Yes, good. Hi. Um, is it um, My name is Louisa Larakefu. I've recently just retired from maternal child health nursing in ACT, but also my background is in women's studies as well. And I'm from the Pacific Islands, so, but I've been here since 17. And I know, like you said, Australia is really high and, and we all know We've done a lot of work, domestic violence, and still are, and writing, you know, 
from school age and parenting groups and all that. Um, I guess I, I thought that was interesting you, you mentioned like voice, choice and safety. Because my observations in the islands, you know, it, it was always about mainstreaming, which covers a legal part of it, because people were, you know, they would just have to do what the law says. But women as agents, you know, I thought, you know, it's about their voices and, and it's about the choices. In Australia, I often say to my young mums, you know, in Australia it's about making the right choice. Where I come from, they don't have a choice. Yeah, so either way, it is a big problem. But I thought that's a really good start. For women as agencies, you know, to, it's about their voice yeah, and it's about the choice that they make. You know, I know I'm from Tonga and you know Tonga hasn't signed up for CEDA and all. <laughs> 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 But it, it's about contextualising and considering, because I know in Pacific we've done a lot of work with other countries and teaching the women to use it, you know, be considerate of their cultures and things, and they can do it. You know, it's about their choices, it's about their voices. So I hope when you go to the Pacific, <laughs> it's about teaching the women you know, it's about education, it's about, and Australia is pouring millions of dollars, you know, to Tonga and the Pacific. So I know they'll get there, but uh, it's going to take a long time, but, you know, they're, they're getting there, I think. So, yeah, I, I, I just want to comment on how you said it. It's the women's voice, it's their choices, and it's their safety. Yeah, but also it's about the legal mainstreaming mm. things. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the very thought-provoking uh, questions. I think I'll start with the first one, and I think maybe Melissa, you want to respond to our friend from Afghanistan. Uh, you've been doing some work there, but you know, I think the SDGs. I mean, I'm maybe. I think I'm a born optimist, but I'm really excited about the SDGs actually, because if you look at some of these really the sticky issues. You know, in the MDGs, we know they were missing. In fact, activists like us working on anti-violence against women, we called violence against women the missing target of the MDGs. It was nowhere, right? And the types of targets that were there were the ones that were, because there were also men in the room, and it hadn't been so many consultations as we had with the SDGs, and they picked things that were easy to measure. Yeah, women in parliaments are easy. It's not expensive to collect that data. It's not complicated. It doesn't leave a whole lot of room for interpretation. Girls who are enrolled at school, you just look at the lists, right? Or the messages they're learning in school, what's the quality of education? And we didn't look at that. We the easy things. Now, the SDGs don't do that. The SDGs go deeper. They go to the root causes of discrimination. They look at, they have targets on measuring unpaid work. How can we understand women's empowerment if we don't know what women do day to day? How do they spend their time? Yeah, they do have some targets on, on intimate partner violence. There's a whole lot of uh, methodological and financial uh, uh, challenges with measuring that data, but they include targets. They say eliminate, not reduce, not address, not respond to, eliminate violence against women. That's a, tar that's a very ambitious goal. <clears throat> yeah, so we have SDG, and, and of course, we haven't even talked about all the harmful practices, right? Child marriage, <clears throat> FGM. 
trafficking, you know, all, all, all of these are, are, are there. And of course, signing up to something is easy, implementing is hard. But for all of us, whether we are individual citizens or NGO activists or, or government officials or UN agencies, a commitment is something that we can attach our advocacy to. Yes, states have to report. They have to collect the data. Um, so we have a strong SDG 5. For me, that's very promising because heads of state have said gender equality is part of our core business. It's no longer something that's on the sidelines. And not only do you have a strong SDG 5, which is the one on gender equality, but you have really strong targets that deal with a whole range of gender equality issues across the SDGs. Yeah? Poverty reduction also talks about economic assets, women's rights to, con to control economic resources, decent work. This is all supposed to be collected, sex and segregated data on access to decent employment. Yeah, social protection. You have SDG um, 16 on, on peaceful societies, has also very strong targets around you know, how you consider safety in, in, in public. So I'm actually quite positive that it does give us an opportunity, and as UN Women, we work a lot now with governments to create baselines, to collect data, to measure where we are. You're absolutely right, the data is not there. We're starting from a low point. At the moment, we only have data at, at global level. We don't even have data for 80% of the targets in, in SDGs concerning gender equality. The data is not there. So we have to invest in, in gender data. We have to invest in statistics. We have to make sure that governments have the capacity to, to measure, to disaggregate, not just by gender, by, you know, minority status, by migratory status, by social and economic status, disability, a whole range of issues, right? Um, so I do think that it provides a, a tool for accountability. <coughs> But I think it's really up to all of us how we use that tool to hold the state accountable. Uh, and for that, measuring, and that's why I think what the UN, sorry, it's a bit of a jargon, but they call the means of implementation. Yeah, it's how are you going to implement all of this? And that's where we haven't talked about the money. But as they say, if you want to look where the priorities are, you follow the money. So looking at where the resources are, what, what, what do the budgets say? Is the budget even public information? Can we track how much of those budgets benefit women? Yeah, it's looking at the resources, the investments. That's one. You know, having the data. You know, the partnerships. So um, I'm a little bit more optimistic. I, I do agree that I think it's 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 a huge challenge. No country has achieved it, but at least now it's there. We have to report on it. And I do hope that it will contribute to greater debates, to greater investments. And the better data. And with that, we will have better programming and better policy making, hopefully. And I'll let Melissa talk about uh, uh, a response to the rest. Thank you, Anna Karen. So, thank you for the question about Afghanistan. That's a great question. There's a lot to say uh, about how we're approaching uh, gender equality and women's empowerment in Afghanistan. It's one of the, it's, it's certainly one of the most challenging places to do this kind of work. Um, UN Women does have a big presence there. We are doing a lot of work around women's leadership, around women's economic empowerment, and a lot on violence against women. Now, one of the big challenges in a place like Afghanistan is women have very little mobility, right? Women cannot freely walk around. 
You cannot go to the market. Yeah, men go to the market and do the shopping. Women stay home. They stay with the children. They're not in the workforce. It's very hard for women to work outside of the home. Uh, you cannot travel alone if you need to go somewhere, if you want to go to university. Very difficult, especially when you're not in, in the city or in Kabul or you know, in outer areas. Really difficult for women to, to gain access to even those little opportunities. Say they wanted to start a business. How are you going to build your network if you can't leave your house? You cannot. You know, it's really hard. And so, and for women who are experiencing violence, and violence against women in Afghanistan is extreme. There is torture, there is slavery, there is there are horrific things, there are frequently murders of women for you know all kinds of reasons. So it is a very hard place. It's hard for women to get safety because the expectation is if you're having a problem at home, it's because it, you as a woman are somehow not meeting the expectation of what you should be doing. You're making the mistake, it's on you. Uh, so where do they go? What do they do if they're in a life-threatening situation? In across Afghanistan, we have, we have supported women's organizations. There are women's rights organizations that have set up shelters. Those shelters allow women to come in and give them you know, safety, and them and their children. But then how do they leave? This has been the big problem in Afghanistan. You can't let those women, they, they cannot leave because they will be killed. Why? Because they've spoken out. They have broken the social code. You're supposed to be silent. If this happens to you, you're not supposed to talk about it. That's shame. That's shame on your family. You have brought shame on your family by admitting that violence is happening to you. And so those women are in further danger. So they come into the shelters, and then, it's, and then they stay sometimes. They stay for quite a long time. And so we have been working uh, to find solutions to this problem. How can we support these women to get safety through skills training, through education, through various creative means, how do we support them to do that so that they can leave? How do we negotiate? How do we support negotiations with their family so they can be safe if they do go back home? Um, so this is what we're doing. Um, we've just got a new you know, set of funding to do this exact work. Where we are looking is particularly at the linkages between women's economic empowerment and resources and violence. And we're also looking at how can we prevent violence from escalating to the point where she has to go into a shelter because we know it's so hard for her to come out. Can we work more with families where they're at risk? What we allowing them to know? So we have these family guidance centers that have been set up around Afghanistan where we talk about these kind of issues and we'll do, and there's a lot of mediation that happens between families uh, where there's this kind of problem. Mediation very, very often is not in the favor of the woman it's usually done by a community leader, a religious leader, someone who's not really thinking about the best interests of the woman. He's thinking about how do we, how, what's the quickest way I can make peace in this family? How can I get an agreement between her and between him that they're going to go home and they're going to be peaceful? And so we're working with mediators to say, look, we want you to understand that if you're doing that, you're actually putting this woman at risk for further violence. Uh, and so you know, to understand, and what are some different ways that we can approach that? How can we identify cases where women, the woman is at very serious risk and help her get assistance from police when that's necessary or from other women's rights groups, from the government, from the Ministry of Women's Affairs, which does provide a lot of assistance to these women. So there's many ways that we're trying to intervene at different points. Um, you know, we work with UNFPA, another UN agency that does health support, 
We work with other UN agencies that are doing justice work and policing to, to train these people so that when women do come to them, they can provide the right kind of support. So this is it. I mean, it's a, it's a long-term approach. We're also working with universities and with schools to help women become more educated so they have more opportunities, so they have more leverage, so they're not stuck in these situations where they can't leave. So that's kind of a short answer to a, <laughs> a long, much longer story. But thank you for that question. Yeah. And do you have to the, the third question? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, and, and actually, also thank you for the question from Tonga because I think this is uh, this is really the biggest difference between the MDGs and the SDGs, uh, and that is the challenge because this is transformation. Huh? This power, when you give women choice, you give her power that can disrupt some really deeply <laughs> held patterns and beliefs within the family or within the community. I think it's, it, it's a big challenge to the whole the whole fabric of Tom. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Because yeah, I, I, I mentioned it to the king there, because yeah. he used to be the high com here. Yeah. And I said, why is it they don't? And he said, but you know why. And, you know, and I used, but then it's, some, you said something mm -hmm. about the women who are out there at the forefront you know, and I say, you know, you celebrate the smallest little, you know, um, whatever you get, instead of shooting for land rights, instead of staying with domestic violence, you know, and then starting in the something smaller and more realistic. And, and I think also when you support, you know, there's been this research to show, and maybe some of you have seen it, that you know, that one of the biggest factors in reducing violence against women and having social progress is actually having a strong and autonomous feminist women's movement yeah, and women's it. organizing, right? We know this is critical because it is about organizing, it's about uh, continuously, with tenacity, bringing the issues to the table, asking those questions, getting that data, uh, and it becomes an empowering experience. And slowly, when you have more women, their voices are raised, slowly norms to change. Yeah? We have a wonderful example from young women in Vietnam who said the law doesn't include dating violence. And the older women's organizations, they weren't talking about it because they weren't teenagers. And they're saying, we're facing online stalking after breakup. Yeah? We're facing sexual violence in our dating relationships, and it's not covered by the law. But with you and women's support and our NGOs that we're working with, you know, we train these young women to be advocates. Yeah, they have their own organizations. They learned about the CEDAW, you know, the Women's Convention. They had the chance to go to Geneva when, the, when Vietnam was reporting. And they did their own research, a small online survey, because there was no data on the issue. They collected the data. They brought the data to the CEDAW committee. And you see now there are recommendations to amend the laws so that dating violence will be included. You can imagine how these young women feel. They're very proud. Yeah? So, you know, you, you get knowledge. Knowledge is power. You gain skills. Skills are power. Of course, we have to be very conscious of not upsetting. And I think Melissa's example from Afghanistan is a very good one. <clears throat> it's do no harm. We do know that where power increases, that can cause some friction. You know, that have to be managed. Um, but the more, the more women you see and the more those issues are brought up, the more space for change you're creating. And we need to do that across the board, right? We need those women police officers to be visible in, in the police force, yeah? We need women judges, 
In many yeah. countries, we don't have any. That's how we did it in Australia. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The young women. Mm. It's about that yeah. empowerment. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. So um, we could go on all evening. <laughs> but unfortunately, we don't have that luxury of, of time tonight. Um, so I'm wondering if just briefly, if each of you would share just what gives you hope. Um, clearly, we've heard a lot of stories of despair. We've also heard a lot about promising practices and policies across the region. But I think it is important to give us a kernel of what, what does give you hope for the future. And if there's any specific call to action that you'd like to share as well, and I certainly have one for the end if, if you don't. So, Melissa, would you like to kick off what gives you hope? Sure. Uh, I'll say two things quickly. One, 10, 20 years ago, violence against women was a problem that not everyone was talking about. Yeah. Very hidden problem. Really shameful if you talked about it. That's changed. That's changed in places like Australia. It still needs to continue to change, but it's changing. And in a lot of the countries where we're working, that change is happening really rapidly. We've done research which says, you know, which helps us better understand this is the, the rate that violence happens to women in this country. And that's really opening up the conversation. And it's and it and it, it's changing the way government approaches it. Because they cannot say, oh, that's a problem that, that happens to those people over there. But we respect our women. Uh, they can't say that when you have good research and you have good data, right? So we're using that data, and that is changing the conversation, allowing us to really open that up. <coughs> the other thing is that there are, there's a real shift happening in terms of how we perceive masculinity and femininity, right? 20 years ago, men were not so involved in childbirth and childrearing and, you know, uh, being involved in, in raising a family in the same way that they are today. Right? And for me, that really gives me hope because it's about sharing. You know, what we're talking about is you know, just sort of sh shifting some of these responsibilities, um, shifting power, shifting resources, and sharing. And we know from men, because we are talking with men and men are our allies in this, in this movement, that men benefit. Really, men really feel the benefit of being more involved in parenting, being more involved in and you know, sharing what happens in the house and making decisions. Not so much responsibility, being able to share that responsibility is a good thing. So these are the things that give me hope and I, I like to see this change continue. I think so. No, I, I, I completely agree. And, and I think for me that you see this change happening at all the levels. And we know that, and I think we've talked about it this whole evening, that it's not, you cannot work at any one level, right? You have to work at all the levels. At the state, you know, uh, society level, the legal, international, community, family, individuals, and where you see change happening at all of these levels, from the highest to, to the individual, I think for me that that does give me a lot of hope, because where you see, like last year when the SDGs were signed, from Asia and the Pacific, 18 heads of state went to a dedicated women's gender equality, the global leaders meeting on gender equality, where they spent how many days only talking about gender equality and making commitments on behalf of their countries. The majority of them, by the way, spoke about any violence against women as top priority. Well, you would not have had 18 heads of state from our region <laughs> think that this was their issue. So, you know, we might think it's just rhetoric, but it's important. It sends a strong message. So you have that leadership. But in the end, for me, it's really about the individual because I think all change starts from within. 
And when you see individuals being transformed and becoming agents of change, you know it can happen to anyone. So I'm thinking uh, just one young man that I've had a chance to work with. His name is Dhruv. He's from India. He's from New Delhi. He's from, you know, an educated middle-class family, never had any social activism whatsoever. He's a graphic designer. And these rapes were happening, and some of his female friends at school were getting, you know, uh, engaged in, in uh, protesting and so on. And he said to me that he just felt that he could not just stand by anymore. He could not be a part of it and not do something about it. And so he started using his graphic design and IT skills to start a blog with some other friends to kickstart conversations online. And it was conversations around consent, uh, discussing sexual relationships, healthy masculinities. And it became this huge movement and, and they had support to, to do that. He then became trained as a peer educator uh, by, by us. He became an active member of the youth network that, that we have. Uh, to talk to his peers about respectful relationships. And this is just one particular individual. Uh, and, you know, a couple of years ago, he had the chance to go to New York to present the, the statement on behalf of the young people, young men and women working together on what they wanted to see. He presented it to the Secretary General in New York, and this was just a young guy from Delhi who was a graphic designer. And a couple of years before, he had never thought that he had anything to do with it. And, you know, this is how he's living his life now. So I think there are millions of stories like this. And I think um, if my call to action in, in that sense is, okay, so we have from the head, you know, heads of state to um, any person can begin that, that change. Uh, because it starts from us and it starts to the messages that we tell our, you know, how we raise our sons and daughters, the messages we give to our friends, the questions we ask, if we have the chance to have access to policymakers, what questions do we ask them about where they spend their money? What those their priorities are? Are we asking them about these issues? Um, are we complaining when we see the media reporting in not sensitive ways? <laughs> do, we, do we write a letter of complaint? Um, you know, do we make our voices heard? Do we stand up? Um, do we advocate? Um, I think all of us uh, can, can do that. And, and, and I do see more and more people doing that, men and women. Uh, but, you know, being that, that change that, that they want to see in the world, and, and I think that there is definitely movement, and, 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 and it's growing, and, and I think we really now have come to the point where people do see this as, as, as everybody's business, so that gives me hope. That's great. Thanks so much, Anna-Karen and Melissa. And I have just a couple of, of closing words for all of you today. Thank you for spending time hearing about the transformative work of you and women. I know for me, when I get up every day, I'm absolutely inspired by the fact that there are people like Melissa, like Anna Karen, like Drew, like all of the people whose stories we've heard here today who are active agents for change. And we all have the opportunity to be an agent for change, as Anna Karen said, and I'd like to challenge you in a different way. So UN Women National Committee Australia exists, as I said in the beginning, to raise funds to support the important programs that UN Women is delivering and to change policies for women and girls all around the world. And the 11th of October is International Day of the Girl Child. So happy International Day of the Girl Child. And I would like to ask you what sort of world you'd like to see for your daughters, for your nieces, for your sisters, for your grandsons and granddaughters who will come after all of us. 
I invite you to make a donation, support the important work that you and women in Asia and the Pacific is doing. That's one call to action, an important one. Another call to action, you and Women National Committee Australia is organizing a charity cycle. Get on your bicycle, see the important work that you and women is doing in Vietnam. Actually, part of the Ride for Rights 26-2017 would be visiting the whole of community approach in Da Nang province in Vietnam, working across parents, school children, made members of the media to do just what Melissa and Annika have been talking about tonight and violence against women. I know many of you are engaged in UNAA, and I congratulate you and thank you for being here. And I'd like to thank UNAA for your partnership in putting on this event tonight. Become a member of UNAA, make a donation to UN Women National Committee Australia. Get involved in the conversation. So thank you all for being here. I recognize we're um, one minute shy of 7.30 and understand the Legislative Assembly is a bit um, specific about us sort of wrapping up. But there's a drink and a sandwich on your way out. Thank you so much. We have a couple of um, interns. Thank you, Emma and Bridie, for your support tonight. And if you'd like to make a donation, give your donation card tonight, we can take them. Thank you. been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>